Yeah, you better not sing that second verse. I haven't preached for four weeks, so, uh, you know, I got a lot of stuff stored up there, you know. Yeah. Hey, for those of you uh, in choir, I want to make sure you uh, make it a priority to be there tonight. And for those of you who have been on the fence what, trying to decide whether you should be in choir, we'll still let you in tonight. This is for uh, Good Friday. We're going to be singing on Good Friday. I know some folks at Christmas time when we performed said, you know, I couldn't decide whether I should get in the choir and I should have gotten in. So, so tonight's your last chance to join in. We got a great, uh, a great musical with a lot of great pieces of music and some great uh, narration and ministry uh, included in there. And uh, we're looking forward to, to a good ministry on Good Friday evening. Well, open your Bibles to John 16, please. We're going to be getting back to the Gospel of John here for a while. Been working our way through this book, and uh, we've made it through the first 15 chapters and actually the beginning of chapter 16, and we're going to go on farther today. Uh, I'm happy to be back sharing with you today. Vacation was restful uh, and rejuvenating, and the recovery from surgery has gone well as far as I know. Uh, You know, I've never had uh, a, a joint or a muscle worked on like this. I... I had a nose job. Unfortunately, they didn't make it look any better. They just made it work better, you know. Uh, but that's, that's not that big a deal compared to this, I guess. Um, you know, I really had no idea what to expect because I've never been through anything like this. I suppose the next time I have a shoulder worked on, I'll be an expert. <laughs> and I'd say, given all things equal, there probably will be a next time, but... Um, I had no idea to what, what to expect because I've never been through anything that was medically this significant. Uh, you know, for sure, the first day or two were no surprise. I was very uncomfortable. But now, just 10 days after surgery, I'm feeling pretty good. Uh, I'm not ready to arm wrestle or build a fence or anything like that. But, but uh, you know, I, I think I'm feeling pretty good. The disciples had no idea what to expect when Christ started ministering to them. They really didn't. He came along and said, hey, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And I think they went, okay, let's see what's in this. And they followed. And then after about three years, they kind of got in a pattern. You know, not a rut, but a pattern. Good ministry has good patterns to it. And they knew, you know, Jesus does this and we do that and the people do this and that and this is how we're ministering. And then we come to John chapter 13 uh, up through the end of the book or up through the crucifixion when Christ is talking directly to his disciples saying, now fellas, something's going to be different. And they're looking at that going, what in the world is coming and we have one of those passages today. That actually, this whole, throughout this whole large passage of several chapters, repeatedly we get this feeling from the disciples that they are very uneasy about what is about to happen. So we're going to read starting in uh, verse 1 of chapter 16. These things I have spoken to you, this is Jesus talking, that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think he offers God service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. But now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are, your go- where are you going? 
But because I have said these things, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness and judgment, of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. The disciples who became the apostles, had no idea what to expect when Jesus started to say, now things are going to be different. I'm going to be killed, and then I'm going to be gone. And the word of Jesus is they became sorrowful. They became sad. Other times he said they were anxious. They feared that this new way that was only three years or less old was coming to an end. They could not envision this new way, as it was called, without the master of the way. It's almost like they thought they were all going to be laid off and the plant was going to be shut down. They were just going to have to go back to fishing and it was going to all be over. But Jesus says here, no, when I leave, things are going to get into high gear. And I'm going to need every one of you. That's because, verse 7, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. It's going to be better for you if I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I depart, I will send him to you. Now, the statement here gives us pause sometimes because it almost sounds like the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ could not possibly be present together on the earth at the same time. I don't believe at all that that's what the Scripture is saying. There is a heresy built on that idea, and it's called modalism. The idea that in the Old Testament, God expressed himself as the Father. In the time of Christ, he expressed himself as the Son, and now he expresses himself as the Spirit. That, that doctrine of modalism is not Trinitarian, and it is not biblical, and it's not what Jesus was saying. Jesus was saying this, Lord willing, I'll be able to do this thing with my left hand. He was saying this in terms of the sending of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit cannot come until I finish my work of salvation. The Spirit cannot come until I finish my work of salvation. In John 14, Jesus said this, The Spirit of truth whom the world world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and he will be in you. Here's an important truth. If you're not catching it in this verse, I want to make sure you do. The world cannot receive Christ. Why? Because it neither sees or receive the Spirit. It neither sees him nor knows him. Receiving the Spirit of God is dependent on having a relationship with God. Until you have a relationship with God, the Spirit of God cannot help you, and he will not help you. And so Jesus is telling the the apostles, look, when I leave, when I complete my work, then the Holy Spirit will be able to come. This truth is elaborated in Romans 3, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, whom God set forth as a propitiation or a satisfaction of God's demands by his blood through faith, 
to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. The Holy Spirit was not able to come and dwell in believers in the Old Testament because their sins were not forgiven, only put on hold or atoned for. And here we understand that when Christ died on the cross, the sins past were forgiven as well as the sins future. And now the Holy Spirit can come into us because when we believe, we receive the righteousness of Christ. And so we are righteous vessels ready for the Holy Spirit to inhabit. And in John 16, Jesus is telling the, the disciples, look, he's with you now, but he's going to be in you when I complete my work. The Spirit cannot come until I finish my work of salvation. There's a second very simple point here as well. The Spirit cannot, the Spirit will come to indwell believers because it is the Father's plan. And I could put it negatively. It was not the Father's plan for the Spirit to indwell believers while Christ was on earth. Obviously not until the work of Christ was finished. It was God's plan. John seven thirty nine. But Jesus, this, this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. It was God's plan for Christ to come take on a human body, shed blood, pay for our sins on the cross, demonstrate his power over sin through the resurrection, and go to heaven to be our advocate. And then it was his plan to send the Holy Spirit to empower us, to indwell us, to make God's ministry possible in the absence of Christ. The disciples could only only think, oh, Christ has to be physically with us for this to work. God determined elsewise. Jesus had spoke about the coming of the Spirit, but now he adds another piece of truth about the coming of the Holy Spirit in John 16. He adds and he says, look, not only is the Holy Spirit going to come and indwell you, but he is going to be convicting. The Holy Spirit is going to be convicting the world. And the word world is often used as a synonym for unbelievers. The Holy Spirit is going to convict. And the word convict here means to make them understand and perceive or feel their real position. It was a legal term when John used it, and we still use the word convict to define the circumstance when someone who is accused of a crime has been proven by the facts to have actually committed the crime. Person is the alleged perpetrator of a crime until they go through the trial, the facts are presented, and then at the end, the judge whacks that gavel down and he says, you, in fact, are guilty. Now, he still may not believe his condition, but his conviction, his, his position has been demonstrated. He has been convicted of a crime. God says that the Holy Spirit is the one who makes the world understand and perceive their real position before him, which is one of being a sinner, but also to perceive a couple of other things. The first thing that the Holy Spirit convinces of, we have lost. The first thing the Holy Spirit convinces us, uh, convinces people of is this, that unbelievers, uh, he convinces He makes unbelievers understand they are sinners. Let's read verse 9. 
We're starting in verse 8. And when the Holy Spirit has come, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. There are many ways to identify sin in unbelievers. Um, There's a real popular method of witnessing, and there's nothing wrong with this, by the way, that uses the Ten Commandments. And if you've seen any of these videos, uh, they're shown on the Christian TV channel, or you can buy the videos, and they go out and say, you know, do you know the Ten Commandments? You know, do you believe in living by the Ten Commandments? Yeah, and then they ask them a question. And basically, through a process, they prove that this person is a sinner. And the person goes away going, yeah, I'm a sinner. You know, I mean, they, on some level, they grasp the fact that they're sinners. Um, here, Jesus says... The sin that the Holy Spirit is going to convict them of is not believing in him. Now that is not the only sin, and that is not the only sin that they will be judged by in heaven. God says that when the unbelievers stand before the great white throne, there's going to be a book opened and then another book, which is the book of life, and they will be judged by the things written in the books. And so it would appear that God is going to say, look at, here's your list of sins, And then he'll look over here. Did you ever believe in Christ? Nope, you never did. You're guilty. You're going to hell. Okay. It would be safe to say, as the scripture does here, that perhaps the chief sin that sends a person to hell is the sin of disbelief in Christ as Savior. God is keeping a record of every sin, but the sin that supersedes all others is this sin. Are we dead in the water? That's okay. I'm just going to, I'll cite the scripture and I'll read it for you and we won't take time to look at it. But if you're taking notes in John 3, 18, Jesus said this, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. Jesus says the ultimate thing that will condemn a person to hell is their lack of faith in Christ as Savior. John Phillips in his commentary said it this way, the greatest sin a person can commit is not to believe in God's beloved Son. It's like a man who has a deadly but curable disease. He goes to the doctor who prescribes a remedy, but the man refuses to take it. He dies of his disease not because... He had the disease, but because he spurned the remedy. Boy, I think that's well put. He dies of the disease, not because of the disease itself, but because he refused the remedy. And that's what Jesus says here. He said the Holy Spirit is going to go out in the world, and he's going to make people understand that they are refusing the remedy. Or we could even turn that and say he's going to make them understand that they are sinners in need of the remedy. The Holy Spirit makes unbelievers understand they are sinners, and he makes unbelievers understand who Christ is. Look with me at verse number 10. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Certainly the term righteousness has many facets and applications to the person of Christ, but here 
it's uh, spoken of as that Christ proves his righteousness by going back to the Father. I go to my Father. It speaks of the inherent righteousness of Christ because only righteous people go to heaven. The whole time Jesus was here on earth, people were evaluating him. Who does he claim to be, and is that true? And here Jesus said, look, I'm going to prove that I'm righteous. I'm going to go back to the Father. The fact that Jesus died on the cross could have proved him a wicked man who had been executed by the Romans. But its story didn't stop there. He went to the grave and then rose again. Wicked people don't do that. In fact, uh, until Christ came along, nobody did that. And he, was, he went to heaven briefly, came back and was on the earth for a, a number of days, and then eventually the disciples all stood and watched him go into heaven. They saw him go. Everything Jesus said and did proved that he was who he said he was. But this is only believed when the Holy Spirit convicts unbelievers that it is true. There's a third thing that the Holy Spirit convicts unbelievers of. The Holy Spirit makes unbelievers understand that they will be judged. Look at verse 11. Of judgment, (coughs) of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. God says that if unbelievers understand that Satan is judged or condemned, then they will understand that they are condemned with him. John 12 says this, Now my soul is troubled, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. Jesus Christ used the term lifted up to speak of death on the cross. He said, if I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. But he also said that when he would go on the cross, that would be time when the ruler of this world would be judged or the, 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 the pronouncement of judgment would be executed against him. And this started in Genesis 3. When uh, God said this, I will put enmity or hatred between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. That's, he's talking to Satan. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The cross is Satan's doom. As that old serpent fastened his evil fangs on the Savior's heel at Calvary, he felt that foot begin to crush his head. Boy, isn't that well put? Again, a quote by John Phillips. Jesus said, when I get lifted up, that's when the ruler of this world is judged. When you talk about the joy who was set before Christ when he went to the cross, Hebrews 12, part of it was that joy. The cross is Satan's doom. As that old serpent fastened his evil fangs on the Savior's heel at Calvary, he felt that foot begin to crush his head. Then 
He will say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. There is a linking between unbelievers and the devil in the sense of judgment. If the devil is doomed, so are unbelievers. Now, here's the key thing I'm trying to get to today. Some of this that I've been over, you probably know. You certainly know that the Holy Spirit convicts people. But this is the real message here today. The Holy Spirit is the only person who can make people understand and believe those things we just talked about. You cannot do it. But, but... You are the agent through whom the Holy Spirit is going to work. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you're not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. Can the Holy Spirit convict anybody of anything without the work of the body of Christ? I would say to you, no, and here's why. Because there are two things that God has to do through the body of Christ, only because he chose. I'm not limiting God, except as he has limited himself. And the first thing that God has chosen to do through the body of Christ is to demonstrate the the life of Christ. The Holy Spirit works through us to demonstrate the reality of these truths that we have just seen. Listen to these passages that talk about our impact on the world, if we're living righteously. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Tomorrow some of you will go to work, and some of your co-workers will tell dirty stories. And you will respond one way or the other. Your behavior will either demonstrate that what they just did was sin or your behavior will demonstrate that it's not that bad. You will either expose the works of darkness and reprove them or you won't. Some of you will go to school tomorrow and your, co- your, your classmates will say, man, me and my boyfriend had a hot time this weekend. And you will either say, tell me the details. Or you will say, you know, I'm late for class. You will either expose the works of darkness or you will encourage them. One of the two. If you're doing what you should be doing, graciously, kindly, lovingly, as best you can, you will still reprove those works of darkness. When I used to go into the fire hall, especially in Tukwila, frequently they'd say, clean it up, the revs here. Yeah, yeah, clean it up. Shouldn't be dirty the rest of the time. And that's not because I'm better than them, folks. It's because their behavior is sin whether I'm there or not. Our behavior, if we are living righteously if we are living righteously, exposes the works of sin. It's a shame for it to even speak of those things which are done by them in secret. Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become 
blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Again, some of you will go to work in the morning and your boss will be unreasonable. And you will either fall down and kiss the ground he walks on or you will turn around and go, that's what that means, you know. Because when you're grumbling and complaining about the stuff in your world, who are you grumbling and complaining about? You're grumbling and complaining about what God has allowed into your world. Anybody can grumble and complain. Any old unbeliever can grumble and complain. But it takes a believer to shine as a light in the world and to go along and get along unless there's absolute unrighteous wickedness being proposed by the boss. You understand? You're either shining as a light. And of course, the unbelievers don't like that. Because if you refuse to go along with the grumbling and complaining, you're going to be a goody whatever, you know. know, They're going to complain against you. But you know what? Your life will reprove their life. God wants to use you to do that. God wants to use you to show the world that it's possible to live above the circumstances of life. One of, the, one of the funnest times I've had was after I got done with surgery. <laughs> we had a hoot with that nurse, you know. You can say just about anything when you're on drugs, and it's okay, you know. <laughs> it ain't a big deal. Either I'm going to die and go to heaven, or I'm going to go home. One of the two. Can I possibly shine as a light when I when I'm having surgery or when I'm having a hard day, whatever it is, God wants us to shine as lights because we are the embodiment of the Holy Spirit. Now, I know the Holy Spirit's not limited to me, but if I am not demonstrating the life of Christ, who's going to? Another passage. And I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples. Is Christ real? The world is looking. I knew a fellow once who said, I'm going I'm to investigate Christianity for a while, and, and I'm going to see if, it's, if, if, it's, if Christ is dependable. And eventually he came to faith in Christ. I'm very glad for that. But you know, that's really not a bad thing to do, to say, well, I'm going to really look into it and see if it's dependable. But part of the way the world is going to find out if it's dependable is through us. God wants us to be the vehicles, to be the agents through which the Holy Spirit can say, hey, you know what? You're a sinner. Christ is the Savior. And someday you're going to have to answer for all of this. We are the vehicle for that, whether we like it or not. Our righteous living demonstrates the reality of Christ and the possibility of a new life in him. I'm going to show you a little video clip where I think some Christians really did a great job demonstrating the reality of Christ. When you walk around the grounds of Gainesville State School, you'll see just about everything you would on any other high school campus. There are students, teachers, a computer lab, and a gym. Except here, 
the students are convicted criminals. It's an incarceration facility for kids that have uh, violated the law. Each day starts in a tiny dorm room they call home and continues marching from class to class, abiding by a strict schedule. In fact, the one thing that makes them feel like kids again is football. I'm just like you know, remote model on campus, you know what I'm saying? Everybody want to play on the football team. Just to put on a tornado's uniform is a reward, not a right. You must have good behavior and good grades. Not to mention, every game is played on the road, but it's worth it to escape on Friday nights and enjoy a small piece of freedom they gave up. But each week, there comes that constant reminder of who they are and what they've done. They don't treat us as a regular person in the world. They treat us like we're just some alien, just from somewhere out, just out of nowhere. I mean, they look at us like animals in a cage, like we don't deserve a second chance or another opportunity to be something in life. After hearing the ridicule and losing eight straight weeks, the Tornadoes were once again on the road, traveling to play private school power Grapevine Faith for the first time, who had moved up a division. Their head coach, Chris Hogan, had a game plan in mind, and it had nothing to do with football. We were going to show them that in this country, if you make the right decisions, people will get on your side and support you. And it doesn't matter what your background is, you can make it. In a selfless suggestion, Coach Hogan sent out an email and requested his fans, his players, parents, do something so out of the ordinary in the football culture. He asked them to cheer for Gainesville State. These young men will not have any fans outside of the faculty from their own school. Their parents will not be there. I want some Lion fans to sit on the visitor side and cheer for the Gainesville team throughout the game. I thought, okay, this is, this is cool that Chris wants us to do this, leading up to it. But getting there that night, it was so easy to transition from being a fan for the Faith Lions to a fan for the Tornadoes. You know, the idea of, uh, of giving and just being there to support those kids, those young men that have never had that before. So for the first time, the always-on-the-road tornadoes would feel as if they were at home. And as kickoff approached, it was obvious something was different. It looked like they thought they were at the wrong end of the field because they know they don't have any fans. And we were just looking. I just looked. I just kept doing my plays. But I seen how they were split up, but I figured they just didn't have enough room on their side. I want y'all to line up in line. They make, they're making a spirit line. I like say what coach? What you say? Can you repeat that? And uh, he said they're making a spirit line for y'all to run through. I like that. That's what's up, sir. That's what's up. When it happened, it was just, it was dynamic. It was one of the most unbelievable things I'd ever seen. When I ran through this, like I felt like it was just like some, like angels was on this side. This all I felt. I was just running through it fast as I can. I just feel the wind rushing my face. That feeling of being unleashed lasted throughout the game, and so did the cheers. We had a penalty like the third play of the game, and I heard booing behind me. I turned around, and it was the, the great man fans. I remember when I was making like a play, I made a chocolate, and people yelling my name. I'm like, I don't even know these people. They were just like ours that night. I, I can remember rooting for their little quarterback, and I felt like he belonged to me. Our kids were their kids, and their kids were our kids, and all kids were the same. It wasn't enough to lead the Tornadoes to victory. As expected, Grapevine Faith won 33-14, and the Tornadoes finished the season 0-9. But it didn't matter, because for the first time in a long time, someone was in their corner, and that alone was worth celebrating.
I was like, hey, y'all, this, this is going to get close, man. I don't care. I don't care if we lost or not, man, because I was feeling good. I feel like we, we won the Super Bowl championship game or something. Like, we won that. I mean, winning, like, in our heart, spiritual-wise, I mean, we won. I've, I've been in state championships a different time, and there's nothing like this. Nothing. Isaiah and the rest of the Tornadoes will never forget the feelings they had on that night. And while it didn't erase the mistakes they've made, it showed 14 teenagers that regardless of the bad things they've done in their past, there was reason to look ahead. I cried. <laughs> when I, when, when after the game, I went back to my room, I cried. I think that your, your family ain't the only ones that love you. God ain't the only one that love you. Other people love you too. This is what I was hoping and praying would happen. I hope that it gave them hope. I see the world in a different way now. I mean, I'll just see, like, I'm the victim no more. So much love because, you know, I came from a broken home family. So, I mean, having all that love, it just, just rose my spirits up. They got to be kids that night. They got to be a teenager and experience Friday Night Football in Texas. What a wonderful, creative way to show the love of Christ. I hope you noticed that, that was a Christian school. That's, that's the whole point here. It was a Christian school who said, can we show love to these guys? Wow. And they got the message. We often talk about preaching through our lives, but it's that kind of stuff that needs to do the preaching. It's us reaching way beyond the norm and saying, God, through the Holy Spirit, is going to convict people, but it's going to take me. If they're going to see love of Christ, if they're going to see the reality of Christ, it's going to come through me. Wow. Living the life of Christ is what God has called us to do, but he's called us to do one more thing. Whoops. He's called us to express God's truth. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? <laughs> the Apostle John put it this way. I've, I've been reading, I read First John while I was on vacation and, and, and sick, and, and uh, it was kind of a fresh understanding of it for me. I hope it will be for you. That which was from the beginning we have heard, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifest, and we have seen it, and we bear witness, and we declare to you that the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us which we have seen and heard, we declare it to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. <laughs> I've always read that and kind of thought mostly about the Apostle John. But that's supposed to be me. The things that I have seen and heard and handled and experienced from God, I need to be passing on to unbelievers so that so that um, we can have fellowship together. God wants to use us to pass his truth on. The reason we're having this good soil 
evangelism and discipleship training is because what is needed for unbelievers to come to faith in Christ is to teach them God's word. Now, the cool thing, and this is the thing that God was trying to get across to the disciples is, you don't have to make them believe, you just need to declare and demonstrate, and I'll take it from there. The thing that the the folks with the good soil have figured out, and, and they're not the only ones who figured it out years ago, but we just have to tell a bigger piece of God's truth. And so this whole seminar is about saying, look, we're going to start with creation and go all the way to Christ. And and we're not going to teach them the whole Old Testament, but we're going to give them the high points so they can get the message, so they can grasp the truth. But we have to declare it. Yes, we have to live the life. We have to preach with our lives, but it cannot stop there. There has to be a day at which we say, brother, sister, could we sit down and could I just share with you what God says? You know, and and, and in my heart, what I'm thinking is, I don't have to prove this. God will prove it. That's the miracle of salvation. That's the absolute miracle, that we can preach the truth, preach the truth, preach the truth, and the Holy Spirit comes along and goes, poke on people's hearts, and they go, wow, that's true. And they believe. That is the coolest thing. I want to share with you Again, by a video, and and don't worry, I'm not going to show this many videos every week, but the Lord just brought these to me this week. And uh, and by the way, thanks to Jerry Ward for sending me the football video, and thanks to my wife for sending me this next one, and because I don't spend much time on the web, I'm I'm doing other stuff. But uh, um, the fellow that's going to be, those of you who maybe aren't quite as familiar with the the current entertainment scene, the the fellow who's going to be talking here is a world-famous entertainer. Okay, and he's sort of a magician, comedian, entertainer guy. Uh, many of you will know him, but what he says that some Christian did speaks to both the point I just made and the point that I'm making now. I want to talk to you about this. Uh, I get home from the show. And at the end of the show, as I've mentioned before, we go out and we, uh, we talk to folks and, you know, sign an occasional autograph and <coughs> shake hands and so on. And there was one guy waiting over to the side in the um, what I call the hover position after I was all done. Big guy, probably about my age. Big guy. And um, he had been the... Um, the guy who has uh, picks the joke during our psychic comedian section of the show. Uh, so he had the props from that in his hand because we give those away. He had the you know, the joke book and the and the envelope and the paper and stuff. If you haven't seen the live show, that's uh, not worth explaining. But he had props from the show that we'd given him from the night before. Uh, he wasn't the guy that night, and he walked over to me and he said. Um, I was here last night at the show, and uh, uh, I saw the show and I liked it. I wanted. He was very complimentary about my use of language and um, complimentary about, you know, honesty and stuff. He said nice stuff. No reason to go into it. He said nice stuff. And then he said, "I brought this for you," and he handed me a uh, Gideon Pocket Edition. Um, 
I thought it said from the New Testament, but I also thought it was Psalms from the New Testament, right? Or, uh, Psalms from the New, just part of the New Testament. Little book about this big, this thick, you know. He said, I wrote in the front of it, and I wanted you to have this. I'm kind of uh, proselytizing. Huh. And then he said, I'm a businessman. I'm, I'm sane. I'm not crazy. And he looked me right in the eye and did all of this. And uh, it was really wonderful. I believe he knew that I was an atheist. But he was not uh, defensive, and he looked me right in the eyes. And he was truly complimentary. It wasn't in any way, it didn't seem like empty flattery. He was really kind and nice and sane and looked me in the eyes and talked to me and then gave me this Bible. And I've always said, you know, that I, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, uh, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself. Uh, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. And I've always thought that, and I've written about that, and I've thought of it conceptually. This guy was a really good guy. He was polite and honest and sane, and he cared enough about me to proselytize and give me a, a Bible, which had written in it a little note to me, uh, not very personal, but just, you know, like your show and so on, and then like five phone numbers for him and an email address if I wanted to get in touch. Now, I know there's no God, and one polite person living his life right doesn't change that. Uh, but I'll tell you, he was a very, very, very good man. And uh, that's really important. And with that kind of goodness, uh, it's okay to have that deep of a disagreement. I still think that religion does a lot of bad stuff, but man, that was a good man who gave me that book. That's all I wanted to say. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for that little fanfare. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Did you see? He was touched. This is a hardcore, pagan, atheist, proud of his position, but something in this Christian, something in the way he acted and the sincerity of what he did reached through. And, you know, while we, while we have to go beyond just handing somebody a Bible, if we get the chance, that's a wonderful part, place to start.
Say, I'd like you to have this. Who knows what'll happen someday? Isn't it, uh, you know, uh, for those of you that are really in touch with the, with, the, with the youth culture, there's a fellow who used to be the lead singer in a group called Korn. And it is a, an extreme heavy metal, you can't believe it kind of group. That guy got saved. And then a, a year or two later, he wrote a book about how God delivered him from a whole series of things, including damnation. I mean, God can, can reach people like this. He can reach people in your world. But he won't do it without some Christian expressing the life and expressing the words. Somehow, some way, that's what's got to happen. Uh, here's, a, here's a scriptural example of that. The Apostle Peter uh, is preaching on the day of Pentecost. Now, when they heard this, the apostle Peter, Peter preached a whole sermon about Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. With certainty, only the Holy Spirit can cause this kind of heartfelt repentance and belief. But with equal certainty, the Holy Spirit will only do this through the life of and speech of believers. The Holy Spirit doesn't come down himself and personally talk to people. He says, you go out and tell them the truth, and when you tell them the truth, I'll go in there and do what you cannot do. (sighs) I've given a couple of examples by video today of what people out there, Christians out there, have done. I want to give you an example today of, of something we've done right here. And I want to just set up this video because you, you won't understand it completely if I don't. This is a video that was prepared for our Awana Club about a ministry they did. And when I saw it being reviewed, I said, I have to have that for my sermon on Sunday. There was a girl who came to our Awana Club several years ago. I don't know the exact timing. Uh, she's older than the Awana Club now. That's why she's not there now. But she came to faith in Christ, or, or at least as far as we know, made a profession of faith in Christ in our Awana Club. And now, several years later, she's in stage four leukemia. I'm not expected to survive. They're trying different things, but I don't believe she is expected to survive. It will truly be a miracle if she does. And so our Awana club said, hey, let's do something for her. And they decided that they would get together and go to this Build-A-Bear thing, which is a place in the mall where you make your own teddy bear, and, and, and with that, communicate some things on paper and by video. And I want you to, to, to look at what they're doing and the words that they're saying through the video. Please. <clears throat> It's time for letting go 
We spoke God's word, and the Holy Spirit convicted her she needed to believe. And we're speaking God's word again, the word of encouragement. This is the ministry that God has called us to, to engage unbelievers inside the walls and outside the walls with his truth. And by his spirit, some of that seed will take root and grow up 
and more people will be following Christ, ready to meet him someday. Part of me wishes that every one of you would come to this good soil training we're going to do, but part of me wants to say this. I know what I've showed you today has been very emotional. I understand that. I think when you really see God's work and what's at stake, it is very emotional. (laughs) But I think your commitment to God's work needs to transcend emotion and go right back to the scripture that says he wants to use us. And maybe you've never really gotten a hold of that today or before today to say, look, God, God is limited, if you will, to me. And so I must be active for him. And if God could put that heart in you, then come next Friday night and learn how God could use you. Be prepared to be God's vehicle, to be, to be the agent of the Holy Spirit in the world. Worship team, come. We're going to sing a song that talks about the word of God because this really is the focal point of what we need to share with the world. It's God's truth. And I hope you'll sing it with us and and consider God's speaking to you today. The Holy Spirit is convicting you of something today. Something needs to change in your life. Something needs to grow. Something needs to be better. Something needs to be gotten rid of. I don't know what it is, but... Let the Holy Spirit do his work through the word today. Let's sing it together.